he suggests that there is something more going on here, something far deeper, far greater, far momentous and grand in the background. The quote from Psalm says that this scene is no random happenstance, but part of God's great plan, a plan which encompasses all of human history. In fact, this here is not just any part, this is the part. This is the turning point of the story. This is the great climax. This is when the hero wins. John records this seemingly mundane detail. Some guards throwing dice for some clothes. And yet it is not mundane. It reveals an extraordinary truth that everything here happens according to plan. The destiny of the great king is to suffer as a criminal. He must be left bruised and bloodied and naked. He must epitomize worthlessness and poverty. He must be offensive to all that gaze upon him. Jesus' account forces us to come face to face with the real Jesus. Not the Jesus of our imaginings, not the, not the Jesus of the oil paintings, not Jesus with long flowing blonde hair, white skin, serene smile, halo above him. No, not that Jesus. The real Jesus is much more difficult to look at. The real Jesus forces us, us to answer the most difficult question. It is a question Jesus himself asks of us, who am I? Who am I? Am I a criminal? Am I a lunatic or liar? Am I a political insurgent? Am I a religious figure? Am I a scam artist? Am I just a good bloke who suffered a bad deal? Or am I who I claim to be? the Son of God, the King of the Jews, the King of the world. If this is true, then consider another question. If Jesus is our rightful King, if he is everything that he said he was, then what is he doing on that cross? Is it a sign that it all went wrong? Is it a sign that God's plan has been sabotaged, has it been hijacked? No. Actually, it's a sign that it all went right. It all happened so that Scripture may be fulfilled and so that the greatest victory would come not through conquest, but through weakness. But that is what comes next. Near the cross of, of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, 
knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Six hours. That is how long Jesus hung on the cross. It must have seemed like an eternity. See, crucified people don't die from the nails. They don't die from blood loss most of the time. They die from exhaustion and asphyxiation that comes from hanging in that position in the glaring sun hour after hour after hour. Crucifixion is designed to be a long and slow death. Imagine then Jesus hanging there. His tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth, his throat sore and dry, his lips cracked and raw. He must have longed even for one drop of water. And yet it is not till right at the end, in those last moments when he hoarsely whispers down to the guards around him, I'm thirsty. This isn't a desperate cry for relief from suffering, no. Jesus knows that there is yet one more thing that must be fulfilled. Another verse from the Psalms. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So Jesus' request is not for comfort. It is so that scripture would be fulfilled. And just as Jesus knew that they would, the guards take his request and they look around. What, What can we give him? And they spy a jug or a jar of sour wine vinegar. Now, I don't know what went through their head. Were they being kind to Jesus, offering him the only liquid that they had on their possession? Or were they playing another cruel joke? Because what could be worse for someone dying of thirst than wine vinegar, sour wine? And yet Jesus, when offered a sponge soaked in this wine, he takes it. He takes it, he drinks of it, he sucks it up. We should be reminded then of what Jesus had said to his disciples in the garden only the previous night. When Peter challenges him on what he's about to do, he replies, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Every single part of the suffering of Jesus is part of God's plan. Nothing is random. Nothing happens without a reason. And this is the final act of the drama. Just as Jesus finishes the drink, he screams out one single Greek word, teletestai. In our Bibles, normally translated, it is finished. Or perhaps another way, it is accomplished. And with that final cry, Jesus dies. Literally, he hands over his spirit. Notice that phrase. No one takes it from him. 
He has the authority to lay it down of his own accord. This is all part of what he had come to do. So what was finished? What was accomplished? Well, the full answer would take an eternity to comprehend, but here at least is something. The drink of wine vinegar symbolizes the completeness of what Jesus had come to experience. He drained the cup. He drained the cup to the very dregs. He drained the cup of suffering, the cup of sin, and the cup of death. He drained the cup of suffering. Every horror of human existence he took on himself and experienced. Poverty, betrayal, rejection, loneliness, torture, pain. All of it he endured. All of it he drank up. No one could ever say that God cannot understand my suffering because the Son of God experienced every inch of it. He drained the cup of suffering. He also drained the cup of sin. We know what sin is. Sin is the state of human existence rejecting and ignoring the God who made us, the God to whom we owe our allegiance, our obedience and our love. Sin is the cancer of the human heart. Sin is the root of every evil deed. Everything from the, from the smallest selfish white lie through to mass genocide, this is the... the the outworking of sin, the outworking of a heart rejecting the Creator. By dying on the cross, the only truly innocent person took on himself the guilt of sinful humanity. Because, friends, we deserve nothing but the righteous wrath of God, and yet the perfect Son of God took it on himself to purchase us redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation of the God that we rejected. He drained the cup of sin. And of course he get drained the cup of death. The ultimate cost of punishment, the punishment for human sin is death, death physical, the end of this mortal body, the dying of physical life, and death spiritual an endless existence cut off from the life of God in hell. Jesus died that day to pay the price for our sin, and so he died physically. It was the end of his life, and he died spiritually. He was cut off from God the Father. Suffering sin and death, Jesus paid it all. He died as one of us, paying the price for all of us so that he could save us. It was the ultimate sacrifice, one man in the place of many. It is finished, teletestai. It's not a cry of the defeated, but the cry of the victorious. It was a cry of victory. The king has won the battle. The great enemies of humanity, sin and death have been put away have been overcome. And so from the cross, Jesus offers now all people a wonderful gift, the gift of faith in him and in what he has accomplished for them. For those who believe, for those who have faith, 
Even though they still suffer, it is only momentary and it is complemented with joy. Even though, for those who believe, even though they still struggle with sin, they have forgiveness for it, past, present and future. And even though we will still die, death is no longer to be feared because even that cannot separate us from the love of God poured out from the cross. So how will we respond to the crucified King who drained the cup of suffering, sin and death? How will we look on the one that we have pierced? Well, that is still to come. Now, it was a day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the body is taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. So we have seen the crucified king and we have tasted the bitter cup. Now finally, we look upon the water and the blood. Because Jesus Christ died, we can be sure without a shadow of doubt that he was dead. He wasn't sleeping. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't unconscious. He was dead. Our story from John adds an eyewitness detail that cannot be ignored, that confirms this to be true. The Jewish leaders request that the bodies of the victims be taken down. Why? Because, ironically, it's a special day and it's kind of ruining the mood. So the Romans agree and they do something, a horrible practice which was common in those days. You see, as I said, crucifixion is a slow death. It takes hours, sometimes days. What do you do if you need to speed it up? You do something truly horrible. You take a hammer and you go from cross to cross and you break their legs. Why? Because as I said, crucifixion is death from asphyxiation. You need your leg strength to be able to open your chest cavity. Without that, death comes quickly, if not even more painfully. And so they do this. They do it to the one on Jesus' left. They do it to the one on his right. And when they come to Jesus, they look up and it seems to them that he is already dead. So to make sure, one of the guards takes his spear and he jams it up into Jesus' side. He, confirm, he wants to confirm that Jesus is indeed dead. The spear probably goes up through the ribcage, probably into his lungs, maybe even up into his heart. 
and out flows what seems to be a mixture of water and blood. Medically, that could mean a number of different things, but what it certainly means is that if Jesus wasn't dead before, he certainly is now. John takes pains for us to know that this is so, that Jesus is dead. He takes pains to say, you know what? I was there. I watched it happen. I saw the water. I saw the blood flow from his side. I was there. I saw it. I am telling the truth. Then he says, why am I telling this to you? I'm telling it so that you would believe. So that you, reading this gospel all those centuries ago, would believe, and us here, reading it now, 2,000 years later, would believe. Not just believe that this really happened, that the events themselves are true, but believe that it happened according to plan so that we might be saved. Finally, John brings to mind just a few more statues of prophecy. We heard them read before. One of them comes from Zechariah 12, verse 10, written hundreds of years before the events of the cross. Zechariah tells of a time when God would send his representative to earth. This person would be like a shepherd. He would guide his people. But tragedy strikes. The shepherd is cut down. And even greater tragedy, the guilty ones are the flock themselves. So God himself says in a prophetic voice, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. You see what happened there? They will look on me, God Almighty, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Don't miss this. The shepherd pierced is revealed to be God himself. So when the people realize what they've done, they break down into mourning. They shed tears. They cry cries. But these tears and these cries are not that of desperation or despair. No, they are tears of confession and repentance because they now know who it is that they have pierced, who it was that they struck down, the good shepherd who came to save them. Just as Zechariah predicted, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died pierced by nail and spear in full public view of the whole world, not just those who were there that day by millions of others throughout history who have read this, passed down the pages of the, of the Bible. Every Easter we come face to face with this Jesus. Even as we see a cross literally walking up the street. How can we ignore it? How can we ignore this man who was crucified for us? We look on the one we have pierced and killed with our sin and we are faced with a choice. We are faced with a choice. We can ignore him. We can go, oh yes, it's a fairy tale, it's a myth. It never happened. It means nothing for me. I will go back to my life following my own desires, worshipping my own gods. 
or we can choose to believe. We can believe in the man who claimed to be God, who claimed to have died on purpose, according to plan and prophecy. We can believe, and just as John did, we can believe, we can invite others to believe too. Because true belief means to give our lives over to the crucified King, to give Him our allegiance, to plant His banner above our heads that says, I am Christ's, I belong to none other. To many this is too much. Uh, this is, it's too much to, to give our love of determining our own lives over, to lay it down for the sake of one who died for us. For some it is too much, and even for Christians it is a daily battle because a king whose glory is found in weakness and death is hard to believe in and is hard to follow. A saviour who teaches that true power is found in laying down our lives for his sake is not easy to trust and obey. But let me fill you in on one secret. There's a reason why this day is called Good Friday even though its purpose is to remind us of a horrible scene. It's good because Jesus never said to us, it's too much. They are too much. He never said, these, these people are too lost, they're too stubborn, they're too sinful. They have offended their Creator too much, they're simply not worth it. Jesus never said about us, it will cost me too much. Instead, he said, I am the good shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That is the good news that is not just about Good Friday, but every day of the week, every day of the year, every day of your lives. That is good news. Because, Jesus, because we were not too much for Jesus, He has made it through His power and through what will happen this Sunday as we celebrate the next part of the story. He has made it possible for us to lay aside every weight and sin that besets us and to run with patience the race set before us, the race of faith, the race of the Christian walk. That is good news. That, my friends, is the gospel.